Just like that, the final hour is here for Hot Mike across the Outkick Network. Hutton with you today, with Roe with the day off. Uh, paying respects to his uncle, uh, Richard Anderson, who passed away. Best of uh, thoughts and prayers to the Withrow family. Uh, Chad did text me and say it was a beautiful service. All great. Great to hear. Chad's back with us tomorrow as we broadcast from 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Uh, tomorrow, jam-packed with NFL Draft coverage leading up to round, round one of the NFL Draft tomorrow night. Plenty of discussion still to come. Clay Travis joins us in 20 minutes here on Hot Mike across the Outkick Network. The college football playoff spring meetings are taking place. And something that that Chad and I hit yesterday and and earlier this week as well, the, the NCAA, the SEC, they are trying to find ways to deter fans from storming the field, specifically the Southeastern Conference. And leading the way is Greg Byrne in Alabama. And there are a couple of other athletic directors. Mitch Barnhart, I believe, is also on this, on this board. And Greg Sankey spoke on this briefly, commenting that, yeah, that the, the reports were true, that they were considering uh, taking away a, a, a future home game doesn't say anything about forfeiture here, but I think it's interesting how he approaches this answer in regards to what they're going to do or what they're trying to come up with to keep fans from storming fields for the uh, safety of everyone involved. And the quote is, we can take fines away. We can leave the fines where they are. We can double fines. We can triple fines. We can quadruple fines. We can set higher standards for visiting teams and officials' protections. You could set some standards where the team exits. There's a whole continuum. Our group is still working. They have talked, they've talked about things, yes. Did they talk about flipping home games? Absolutely. Does that mean it's going to happen? Well, that's why membership gets to vote. But what he goes on to say, I think, is even more important, and he's dead on right. This is from Sankey. Eventually, we'll make a decision. We can't have unhealthy environments. I would argue that part of what has to happen is we have to change the culture. I don't think just passing a rule can stop it. People have to stop it. And he's right in that regard. If you want, by the way, if you want drunk fans to not run on fields and tear down goalposts, that's great. But finding a school $100,000 while you have a chancellor or a president up in the booth saying, worth every penny, that's not deterring anything. It's window dressing for something that is bound to happen whenever you have a massive upset in college football and specifically in the Southeastern Conference. The, I, and Chad and I were discussing this off air. Davey, I think you heard this too. The only way to get fans' attention is by forfeit. Like, hey, don't do this or we're going to lose this game. I'm not saying that's what should happen. I don't want anything to change in regards to if Tennessee's hosting Alabama, if Georgia is hosting Missouri and there's an upset and the next season in the home and home, it's going to stay where it is. I don't want that either. I'm not advocating for that. But if you're trying to say that we can quadruple fines and somehow the sophomore sitting in section O is going to give a damn about that, they don't. And neither does the, the drunk uncle sitting across the stadium in section AA. They're going to celebrate what is a big win over a college football rival 
like they have done for decades and decades. And therein lies the culture of what Sankey's talking about. But the only way to change it is to go way over the top and say you're actually going to lose this game, which is going to impact everything involved with the playoff. And again, I don't think we're going down that road. I do think there are some deterrents they could possibly have, whether it's I mean, every time you're at a game and they're about to storm the field, you'll always hear them come over the PA and be like, hey, do not storm the field. Right. Obviously, that doesn't do anything that's going to amount to anything. I, I know it would be punishing them tremendously, but if you were to tell me I was a kid in college and we're about to storm the field, it's like, I'm going to lose this game from being a home game two years from now. I personally would not storm the field if that was the case because, I mean, I'm a fan of my team and I realize how big of an impact that could have on my program. I don't know how many people you would be able to convince with that, but if you increase security, you had that be the potential punishment. I think there are a good portion of people that well, you would have stay back whenever it came to going out there. The, the policies, and a lot of these stadiums are so old, it's tough to really find a nice route off the field if that's what the big concern is, and I think that is the concern. Um, but other than that, I just don't see the big, forgive me, I don't see the big danger in field storming. Well, you know, uh, I, I mean, we got to go back to the Jermaine Burton incident. But, but, like, but I, mean, I think there, there are ways for increased security in that respect to get players off the field. But, I mean, the dude for ATO that's getting, he's working a fundraiser, working, making $17 an hour, he's not going to get in the way. He's going to get out of the way whenever he's got the yellow jacket on. He's working security. He's the last line of defense. Uh, he's not going to do that when he's going to help people over the railing. That's where the injuries are going to occur, jumping the railing, not storming the field. And they're doing this for the health and safety of the visiting teams. And it's primarily, in large respect, Alabama, because it happens to them a lot. But it's not just them. And uh, so I, I understand that side of it. I also don't think it's, it's, there's a need to jump to an extreme when it's just brainstorming ideas on how to deter fans who don't care about the university having to pay a couple extra hundred thousand dollars if we're going to storm the court or storm the field. A lot to be determined there, but Sankey's onto something when it's like we have to figure out ways to tell people, hey, celebrate elsewhere when you've got chancellors and presidents saying, double the fine, we don't care, let's do it. And by the way, I'm all about the celebrations. Neyland, the other last year was incredible. And it was due to the field storming at the end and the celebration after the kick. Um, so, a couple of other headlines. Refs. College football officiating, by and large, is awful. Even in the playoff. Some really bad crews. Uh, bad calls. Maybe not bad crews. Bad calls. Pac-12's got even worse news. Right now, they have seven full crews for the Pac-12. Five of their referees have been... Uh, not let go. They've been recruited elsewhere. They're headed to the Big Ten from the Pac-12. So their officiating bundle gets even worse as there's a mass scramble to figure out how you make the best of a really bad situation from a TV rights deal to officiating issues to teams that could be on the move. Um, USC and UCLA on their way to the Big Ten. Others will follow. And overall, it affects the product if it's obvious to everyone watching, wherever they may be watching this upcoming season and a half from now, or where you're in the stadium and you feel like your team got screwed and you know the investment in the officiating isn't up to par, just like 
not much is up to par from the Pac-12 with the rest of the Power Five. Something to keep, keep an eye on there. Um, Dane Brugler joined us last week. He had a lot to say about the quarterbacks. But normally, and especially Dane joined us last year, a lot of talk from the athletic and the author of the beast about wide receivers this year, not so much in respect to the top end of the wide receiver class who will be drafted tomorrow night. Here's Dane Brugler's take on why or why not. We may not see a run at that position. These receivers are not on the level of what we saw the past two years, but teams want to, they want more firepower on offense. You know, they want to be dynamic. Um, and so I don't think that that's not going to stop them from drafting receivers this year. And it depends on what you want. Jackson Smith and Jibba, you know, we, we have all these guys in the same wide receiver bucket. Jackson Smith and Jigba is a different type of receiver than Zay Flowers, different type of receiver than a Quinton Johnson from TCU or a Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee. Uh, you know, they're all worse receivers, but they have different strengths and weaknesses, and that fits different positions within an NFL offense. If I'm an NFL team looking for a true X, I'm not. I'm gonna have trouble finding that in the first round. And a lot of teams, that's what they want. Uh, but if you're a little more open-minded to what the college game is giving you, uh, and then you really, you know, if you want that slot receiver, Jackson Smith and Jigba could be that guy. Uh, Jordan Addison, not your well-rounded, uh, or excuse me, Jalen Hyatt, not your well-rounded receiver, but he does two things really well. He can take the top off of defense, tracks the ball really well with ball skills. So, you know, those two traits right there can help you win uh, and help you move the football on offense. Um, and Jordan Addison, he does a lot of things well from a route running perspective, uh, three level threat, but he's 173 pounds. And that's a common theme this year. My top seven receivers, four are under 180 pounds. And that's uh, there's not a great track record of drafting receivers early that are under 180 pounds and then panning out. Smaller wide receiver class, the top quarterback in this year's class, just a little over 180 pounds. If you see him play the field, he's certainly, uh, Bryce Young's certainly not going to play at 204, listed at 194 at Alabama, and looks slighter than that in person. And, you know, there's some belief that we will see quarterbacks fall, that we're not going to see the run on QBs in the top 10, that we will see Bryce Young go number one. But then after that, Indy selects their quarterback, and then what? Here's Dane Brugler's take on what could could happen if we see a drop-off after pick number four to Indy. You know, the quarterbacks. That, to me, that's the, the most interesting. It's always what, uh, you know, drives the draft conversations, but especially this year, where last year we weren't sure how many were actually going to be first-rounders, um, how early would these guys go. And even, you know, I, I can remember the day before the draft working on my final mock draft. I'm talking to, you know, my buddies in the league and I'm asking them, okay, what do I do with these quarterbacks? And all of them said uh, in some shape or, or form, you know, I, I'm not sure, but they're going to go. They're going to go. They always go. They did it. We had one quarterback in their first 73 picks. And uh, a big reason for that, a lot of teams were willing to be patient for this year. Um, and so with this year's quarterback class, where we have four potentially in the top 10, Hendon Hooker is lingering out there. It's, if a team really likes his skill set, maybe he goes in the top 20, uh, top half around one even. So the quarterback conversation is fascinating this season. And so has been the drop of C.J. Stroud. The discussion of, I mean, in February, he was the number one overall pick when Carolina made the trade. 
Then it became apparent they're going with Bryce Young. So Houston just flip-flopped in the mocks. Now Houston is apparently out on C.J. Stroud. And the question would be, who's in? And if you're in on Stroud, do you have to trade ahead of Indianapolis in order to get the Ohio State prospect? Because the Colts could go with Levis if he's available, if Houston passes on a quarterback. They could also draft C.J. Stroud falling right to them or Anthony Richardson. Will a team be aggressive, according to Dane Brugler, for Stroud? I know what I'm getting with Stroud. Um, he's very, I think, I, I feel really good about his floor. Uh, as a pocket passer, a guy that can push the ball down the field, uh, pre and post snap, he reads very well. Uh, he's got a very natural feel for touch. Um, you know, he's he's accurate. Uh, yes, he was su- uh, surrounded by a, the, an A-plus supporting cast in college, but, you know, he does deserve credit as well for what he was able to do. And I think the biggest thing that turned for me with C.J. Stroud was the final game that he played uh, against Georgia. Biggest stage he's ever played in, uh, the best defense he's ever played in, and he played his best game as a college football player. And so uh, the what he was able to show on that tape really kind of gave me the extra uh, optimism about his transition to the next level, that he has the tools to, at the very least, be a capable NFL starter who's going to help me win football games. And what other people are pointing to are his results on the S2 cognitive test. Um, Test, results, uh, game, whatever Hendon Hooker referred to it as earlier this week with us, where you're reacting in real time, playing more or less a video game, trying to find out how fast you can relay things and report things back and figure out the right answer to a a certain question. Well, Stroud, not great at this. The lowest score among those leaked. C.J. Stroud has discussed this and had this to say in regards to everyone making a big deal about the S2 results. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a test taker, so uh, I play football uh, for me. Uh, but at the end of the day, man, I don't got nothing to prove to nobody, so I don't, I'm not going to sit here and explain how I process football. The people who are making the picks know what I can do. Um, so that's all that matters to me. There's a whole bunch of uh, people who know how to coach better, know how to play quarterback better, know how to do everything on social media. But um, the man in the arena, that, that's what's tough, is, is stepping in the arena ten toes. So, um, and I'm going to stand on that. And I know what I can do. I know I can process well. I know if I'm not, if I'm not the smartest quarterback in this draft, um, I know I'm one of the smartest quarterbacks in the NFL when I step in there tomorrow. So I got confidence in myself. And I, and, uh, I don't think you can play at Ohio State and not be smart. So. Um, I don't got nothing to prove to nobody, man. Uh, at the end of the day, if you don't trust and believe in me, uh, all I can tell you is watch this. What's your interaction? I mean, yeah, I'm with him on this. I mean, at what point? Ryan Leaf sat next to Peyton Manning and took a wonderlick test and told us straight up last week. They looked at each other and said, what in the hell are we doing? We're going to go 1-2 in the draft. Um, there's going to be this big debate about results. And, oh, by the way, they scored the exact same on the Wonderlick at the time. And we know where Peyton Manning ended up with the bust in Canton. And Ryan Leaf, self-admitted, and he's right, one of the biggest busts in the draft. A lot is being made about the S2 score. And I, Shannon Terry gave great insight on the background of it and how people reporting on the results don't really know how to report on the S2 cognitive test to begin with. But to think that they're actually moving C.J. Stroud down a board or significantly down their group of quarterbacks based on an S2 test that's been implemented in the league for five years now 
is ridiculous. 18% is the result, the reported result for C.J. Stroud. Um, last, uh, second to last, by the way, Hendon Hooker at 46%. Top scorer was Bryce Young at 98, followed by Jake Hayner, uh, who apparently is not rising on boards either for this miraculous 96% score, Davey. I mean, I, I'm glad we did have Shannon in because that did help clear a lot with the S2. But at the same time, I don't want to hear C.J. Stroud say, like, I'm not a test taker, like I'm a football player. It's like, yeah, we get you not taking the, like, you're not here to just take the test. But yeah. there's bigger things there. It kind of gave me vibes of, like, Cardell Jones saying, like, we didn't come here to play well, school. Well, I mean, but when's the, la- I mean, when's the last time someone's asked for your diploma? I've never been asked to show my diploma. Whether or not you can host a show or not. It's whether or not you know what you're talking about. It's whether or not you can ball. And that's what I would be drafting this guy on. Well, that's true. He, he can play the quarterback position. I don't, the, the S2 results can factor into certain things. But to say that, well, he's falling and here's why, is a, that, that is so much of a stretch. And it's a great example of the, dr- the drama-filled time yes. that we're in right now. I get that. But I also take into account when I hear that, it's like, well, how is he doing in these interviews with the teams? Like, well, that's, that, that's, that, to me, that's different. How he portrays himself in front of these guys is way different to me than what the results are on an S2 score. That's very fair. So, uh, But the, the score itself, when you see the 18%, you're like, oh, look, you know, this... I, I want Over the last four years, I'd like to know... When, Again, like these aren't leaked through S2. This is getting out somehow, and it's the only position that people care about in regards to this, it sounds like. And Shannon was saying that shouldn't be the case. This is but, also, oh, go ahead. But the, but the idea being like, okay, if you have a low score on this, what has that meant over the last four years for quarterbacks that have been taken high versus high score, you know, and what that means on the field? Yeah. Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Harvard. Great. He played for nearly half the league. Um, and that was the one little bullet point that everyone had to mention any time the guy took the field. It didn't mean that they were always going to win football games because he was their quarterback. Yeah, we, we obviously need more data whenever it comes to the S2 and how that's going to play out over the last several years. I guess my bigger point I want to make as a whole is just for anyone in life, just don't say I'm not a good test taker. It's like I just view that as like, oh, wait, you struggle with that part where we learn what you know? All right. <laughs> Well, yeah, but but again, I don't even know what they're asking them on these tests. You know, like we, you could go online and take the Wonderlick. I don't know. It, it's very difficult for the average person, I think, because it's new, to describe what the S two cognitive test it entails as a whole. But when you see the results and you see ninety six percent and then eighteen percent, and at the time there was those were the quarterbacks going one two. That is a talking point. But I'm not sure those talking about it know what they're talking about. Um, Jerry Jones, he's the owner and the general manager. And, I mean, just because he's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys means he can do whatever he wants. But talent-wise, I like the Dallas Cowboys roster. So does Jerry. Here's Jerry at a presser where it got a little weird because Mike McCarthy's sitting right there next to him where he's asked about, Past drafts versus performance on the field. Drafting's not our problem. Coaching is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to get everybody. <laughs> now, he's clearly, you know, poking fun at McCarthy, who's smiling and laughing a bit there. But, I mean, McCarthy was on the hot seat last year, did a nice job throughout the year, and then back-to-back seasons now, 12 wins for the Dallas Cowboys in each of the last two years. 
Wild card loss, divisional round loss. Hot seat, you're always on the hot seat in Dallas. But they pick 24th or 26th, I believe, tomorrow night. And for the first time in a while, there's not a lot of buzz about Dallas as a whole. 26th overall. They need defensive line, offensive line, running back, and tight end. So do we see the first tight end and the only tight end selected in the, in the first round go to Dallas? Are they going to get more help at running back where they're banged up and they're moving on from Ezekiel Elliott? Are they going to put more help up front of the offensive line where they've been injured and guys have moved on through contracts over the last couple of years? Or do they continue to bolster what's already a stout defense? Dallas is a team that for the first time in a while isn't being discussed whenever we're discussing all of the hype of the offseason. It's a bit strange. And McCarthy's still back, and I'm surprised by that. Allen Robinson is out of Los Angeles with the Rams. He said that if he was a fork, why would they try to use me as a spoon? That was the quote, uh, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, he was, if you're a fork, you don't want to be used as a spoon the majority of the time. I don't know how this didn't work with Sean McVay in Los Angeles when they made the trade for him with Chicago. But now he's in Pittsburgh where, I mean, maybe he can be the fork instead of the spoon. But they have, what, Deontay Johnson. They have other younger pieces. And now he's entering with Pickett where he's going to get the football more. Should work out better down the field. But never really fit in well with Los Angeles because he's just the outside guy. And... In today's NFL offense, maybe he is a better fit for Pittsburgh's offense because they're going to use him more on the outside, outside the numbers, downfield passing. But Robinson, much like we saw last year, I mean, they gave away Allen Robinson after trading for him. They're paying $10 million of his salary, Los Angeles is, and they traded him for a seventh-round pick. Pittsburgh gave up a seventh-round pick, and they're paying him $5 million. This can be a huge win for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Coming up, we continue draft discussion. We'll get Clay's take on who he would want number one overall and what he would do from there. Would he draft quarterback, pass on quarterback? We'll dive into the other big sports headlines as well. Clay Travis with us next on Hot Mike. And joined by Clay Travis, founder, president of OutKick, joins us by phone. Clay, hope things are well, man. Uh, I am doing well. How are you guys doing? Hey, excellent. Aaron Rodgers with the uh, the opening presser tells Green Bay officially the fans goodbye yesterday in an Instagram post. Today, walks in, says, hey, number 12 for Broadway Joe. I'm going to wear eight. Then says the Super Bowl three trophy, the Lombardi, it's, uh, well, it's lonely. And while I'm not a savior, I'm here to win a Super Bowl. Looked like a guy to me that was reinvigorated and ready to go and also says that he's looking past 2023 and it's going to be more than just one and done for him there. Well, I mean, that's cool if it's true. And obviously the guy that you would point to and say, can he have a final act of his career on a similar level would be Brady, right? Yeah. Um, if you're a Jets fan, you look around and you say, Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay Buccaneers, won a Super Bowl the first year, two additional, uh, I believe if I'm correct, divisional championships. Um, and it's hard to argue that those three years didn't wildly exceed uh, already high expectations for Tom Brady and Tampa Bay. 
So that to me is the standard that has been set. The challenge in general, I would say, is uh, Aaron Rodgers is just continuing the trend of elite quarterbacks moving to the AFC. Um, And so long as that continues, it leaves the NFC almost as a quarterback wasteland. And I don't know about you, but in the AFC East right now, I would put Aaron Rodgers and the Jets as the third best team. Um, I think the Bills have to be the favorite. I think that the Dolphins, if they can keep Tua upright and healthy, are more proven at second spot. Uh, I think the Patriots, interestingly, are the worst team in the AFC East right now, but I would slot the uh, the Jets in at third. Clay Travis with us. And yeah, I was going to say, man, it's different than Brady because of the conference. The AFC is a gauntlet. Even uh, you just mentioned the division that once they get to the postseason, I mean, and he will have Super Bowl or bust expectations there based on the hype behind him. And I think he can play extremely well and at a high level. I don't know if I, you know, am placing my money behind the Jets just because they just added Aaron Rodgers because of every other top quarterback and team and championship caliber team they're going to have to go through. Yeah, look. Um... That's the uh, when when you looked at it, Brady walked into a good situation with a lot of offensive weapons around him, and the Jets' defense has at times for, uh, performed at a very high level. Uh, but uh, this is exciting, right? I mean, we're on the eve of the uh, of the NFL draft, which I think is basically the third best sports season. Um, yep. yes. I would argue uh, in America. I would go. I personally like college football more than the NFL, but I understand most people like the NFL more, but I'd go college football one, NFL two, and uh, the connective tissue between those two is the NFL draft. And I can't wait for tomorrow when uh, pick number one officially gets underway. Yeah, so Bryce Young expected to be number one. If you're a Texans fan, Clay, or let's just flip it, AFC South fans knowing that Houston could take Will Levis over C.J. Stroud. What do you think the overall, the consensus reaction is to that? Well, I mean, the consensus reaction will be poor, and I will agree with the consensus in that <laughs> respect um, because I've watched Will Levis play a lot of football games, and I'm not sold on him at all. I mean, I, I'm sold on Bryce Young, right? Uh, to me, Bryce Young was the best quarterback in football last year. I also simultaneously can understand the negatives associated with Bryce Young, you know, his height and his weight and his build. All of those things make you wonder about his durability at the NFL level. But in terms of watching him make plays, uh, there was nobody in the NFL, uh, in college football last year who made more consistent plays. And I think you're going to see a pretty massive drop off in the quality of Alabama's offense going from, uh, Bryce Young to whomever ends up winning uh, that starting role uh, for Alabama. We'll see. Because I didn't think that their wide receivers were super elite at Alabama last year, um, anywhere near the level that we've grown accustomed to over the last four or five years prior. And I think that's going to be exposed quite a lot without Bryce Young there. So I would take him. Um, Will Levis, I saw nothing that suggests that he's going to be a great NFL quarterback. I didn't see anything to suggest that he was going to be a great college quarterback. And he wasn't that. Um, in fact, if you just asked me to rank quarterbacks in the SEC last year, I, Will Levis barely makes my top five, right? Just in the Southeastern Conference. Now, I would have had Bryce Young one. Uh, I would have had probably Hendon Hooker two. Uh, I, I, I would have had uh, Anthony Richardson three, who I'd rather have. 
And I would have had uh, Stetson Bennett in there um, before I would have gotten down to uh, the five spot with uh, with Will Levis. I'm not even sure that I'd put Will Levis in the top five. There, yeah, right? maybe, maybe Will um, Rogers. So, yeah, yeah, right. I think Will Rogers probably outperformed him at times, and and I would have rather had him in the SEC. So he's not even top five, and it's possible that he's going to go top five in the NFL. And I'll wear it if I'm wrong, um, because. Certainly, if you look at what he did at Kentucky, um, he did not put forward great numbers. And people can say, well, you know, back in the day, Jay Cutler was at Vanderbilt. He didn't have a great offensive line. He was having to run around all over the place. He couldn't make plays. And he went to the NFL, and he was a pretty solid NFL quarterback. And my counter to that uh, would be that Will Levis did not make enough plays uh, anything like Jay Cutler when he was at Vanderbilt. Um, and I think Kentucky was at least as talented. In fact, Will Levis lost at home uh, to Vanderbilt in his last year as the quarterback at Kentucky. It's not a good Vanderbilt football team. Um, if you're a first-round quarterback, that shouldn't be possible. Clay, there are four teams tomorrow night with multiple first-round picks, and I did a, a top five of the teams that controlled the first round, and I put the Titans in this group. They only have pick 11 but I find them very unpredictable because I don't know what to expect on how aggressive Rand Carthon will be in draft number one while he sits next to Mike Brabel, what they feel like they, they know about this quarterback crop, how aggressive in the price tag they're willing to pay. Are they trading down? Do they stick and pick? And if they do, who's in play at 11? Who do you want to see the Titans be aggressive with? Are you on board with the Richardson or Hooker plan? Or do you want to see them trade up to possibly pick number three with Arizona? Um, I, so the safest pick probably is to go tackle uh, because the tackle position is in need of reclamation. So uh, I say that even though the Titans obviously have whiffed on first round tackle <laughs> and Isaiah Wilson, maybe more, oh, yeah. maybe more disastrously than almost, and it's almost hard for a player to be a bigger bust uh, than Isaiah Wilson was for the Titans. Uh, I would, if, if Anthony Richardson is sitting there at 11, I would be hard pressed not to take Anthony Richardson personally. Um, because I mentioned how much I like Bryce Young. I think the quarterback with the highest ceiling in uh, this year's NFL draft is Anthony Richardson. Me too. Um, I think Anthony Richardson could be Josh Allen, right? Um, he's big, he's strong, he's just a physical freak. Uh, and the knock on him is he's not accurate enough. Um, that's kind of what everybody said about, uh, uh, about Josh Allen. And it took Josh Allen a couple of years, and then you started to see the lights come on. And, you know, I, don't, I still don't th think we have seen the peak of where Josh Allen can go from here. Uh, so to me, uh, if Anthony Richardson is there at 11 and you decide that you want to take a big swing in your first year as a GM, uh, that's the play that I would go with. And Hendon Hooker falls where for you? So uh, my concern with Hendon Hooker is that he is more of a uh, more of a function of how talented Josh Heupel is at calling plays, and that phrase that always makes people nervous—a system. system quarterback. Yeah. And if if Drew Locke had come in. Um, and absolutely lit the world on fire. And I know Drew Locke had success with both Josh Heupel and Derek Dooley. I might think differently um, about the way that I project him to the NFL. Uh, but 
based on what we've already seen of a Josh Heupel-esque quarterback, um, it makes me nervous until I see somebody you know perform. Look, there were just so many times that, much like Steve Spurrier back in his heyday, you look at the field and Josh Heupel has schemed open a completely wide open receiver. Um, and if you go back and you watch, uh, for instance, the tape on uh, the Georgia game, Hinden Hooker missed a lot of throws. The Tennessee didn't play well in the Georgia game, but he missed a lot of throws that he needs to make. And Georgia has what? Elite corners. Uh, they have great upfront pass rush talent. And they really made Hinden Hooker uncomfortable. Now, the team around him did not play well, but there were at least three plays that Hinden Hooker had that could have, maybe even should have been touchdowns, and he missed on all of them. And he was not good, and he was knocked off his spot. And so if I were watching that game, that would have me uh, a, a little bit nervous about how he projects in the NFL where you have to make a lot of difficult under-duress throws and you can't miss the open opportunities that you have. So, uh, yeah, I, I would I would be happy for Hinton Hooker to succeed, obviously, because I'm a, a big Tennessee fan and he was an extraordinary quarterback uh, for Tennessee. But uh, I, I like the risk-reward of Anthony Richardson more than the risk-reward of Hinton Hooker. Yeah, I, I lean that way as well. Clay, you and, you and I and Chad and Allen took in the – win for Tennessee over Alabama and then the field storming that took place. And there's a, a contingency of those within the SEC um, that will present a potential rules change to presidents and, and, and those in charge about trying to come up with a, a way to deter fans from storming fields in the Southeastern Conference. Number one, I don't think it's that big of an issue. Maybe you, you, I understand like they're, they're looking at it from the, the lawyer side, the lawsuit side, the injury side, protecting the players and the coaches of the visiting team. That's all good. But really, this is about just getting the visiting team off the field and letting the home team celebrate when you beat Bama. Cause there's not many other teams that have the field stormed on them in this manner. And I don't know if there's a great deterrent when it comes to a fine because Fans don't care about a university paying a fine, especially when the chancellor or the, t or the president of the university is smoking cigars and saying, hey, uh, uh, let's double the fine. Let's do it again next year. Yeah, I think that's the best advertisement that a school can have. Now, I understand if it happens far too frequently. Um, you mentioned being in the crowd, which we were for Tennessee, Alabama. I think that was the first time Tennessee had, had stormed the field since 1998. So we're talking about a once-in-a-generation style uh, field storming. I would agree in general with the idea of, hey, if a school's doing it every year, if there are issues you know, in a four-year process where it happens a couple of times, I can understand that. I almost think there should be a, uh, uh, an understanding of what makes sort of the college atmosphere so unique. I mean, for anybody who's gone back and watched um, that, footage uh, from the CBS game of the field being stormed, of the fireworks going off. It's probably the single greatest advertisement for University of Tennessee, not just athletics, but for the overall admissions. You know, I was on uh, Monday on Fox News talking about uh, the degree to which kids are making choices to go to states where they agree with the politics. Yep. Um, and there are just massive influxes of kids from outside of the South now 
that want to go to SEC schools because of the brand of tailgating, of you know, uh, of, of the girls, of the weather, of the fun, um, and certainly athletics is a massive part of that. So, um, you know, my inclination in general would be don't over legislate something that doesn't occur very often. Yeah, I agree. I think they're throwing out ideas. It's being reported as, oh, they're going to propose this when it's not even close to a proposal yet, at least according to Commissioner Greg Sankey. Final thing for you, what do you, what do you make of everything Dion's doing at Colorado? But I'm hoping that the, the white cowboy hat is a staple for him on the sideline. I thought it was <laughs> awesome. But the fact that 51 players since he's, he has arrived are now off the program, they've left, and 20 players have entered the portal uh, since the spring game this past weekend. Well, I mean, first of all, the uh, you know that's a bad football team. So it's not like Dion took over <laughs> an elite uh, an elite Power Five conference job where there was a lot of great talent. Uh, they were arguably Colorado was the worst Power Five job, um, uh, sort of worst Power Five team last year in the entire country. Again, arguably, um, look, he's had success at a smaller school. I think it's an incredibly interesting experiment um, because. We now have this essentially perpetual free agency in college football. And uh, Dion is either going to succeed, succeed massively. And by the way, the I believe season ticket sales are setting records. Yes. The amount of viewers for the Colorado spring football game uh, on ESPN. Heck, the reason they even covered it is all because of Dion. So if I had to bet right now, um, I would bet on Dion in the next couple of years being successful as opposed to uh, to flaming out. And I just love that he called his shot when he walked in on, with all the cameras on in that one. The first first talk to the auditorium was, hey, a lot of you guys are going to be here. And he, he, he the quote was, uh, he said, hey, you, you can't have new furniture until you move the old furniture out. I mean, he's just being blunt. Yeah. He, and he ref, he's going to refuse to lose, right? Like if you're not, if you're not going to cut it, well, he's going to tell you to, he's going to tell you to yeah. hit the portal. Yeah, it's going to turn quickly, right? Um, and um, I, you know, I think that uh, it is going to turn really quickly for him. And I can't wait for the feud with the other coaches whenever he starts to pick apart rosters for guys that will join. Yeah, him. no doubt. And also, when you're just disrupting the existing flow chart, a yeah. lot of times people are okay if you come in and you take over. You know, nobody's really mad at Lincoln Riley when he brings in a bunch of transfers and USC immediately becomes good. Because the expectation is in the pecking order that USC is always good. What makes people really nervous in college athletics is when someone who is not a traditional power suddenly upsets the expectations and starts to pass teams that they've traditionally lost to. And certainly that would be Colorado, at least over the last 20 plus years. Clay, appreciate you, man. Enjoy the draft tomorrow. We'll, we'll catch up soon and recap it. Perfect. Appreciate you as well. Y'all have fun. Yeah, man. There's uh, Clay Travis, founder and president of OutKick. Check him out with Clay and Buck as well. Um, coming up, Phillips Arena in Atlanta, double booked because the Hawks somehow won against the Celtics. Great shot by Young. Uh, and there's another Young that we need to update you on in Washington who could be playing for another team soon because the commanders may be allowing him to hit the free agent market sooner rather than later. Details next on Hotline.
So the Atlanta Hawks win, and it's pushed Janet Jackson's concert to Friday. They had to move her concert back a day at Phillips Arena down in Atlanta because they're double booked um, at the venue, which contractually during the playoffs, I've seen it happen in the NHL, they will try to find a contingency date, but it's on the venue to help facilitate that. In this case, Janet's on the tour. I think she's coming through Nashville soon. Matt McCloy can't wait to go to that, he was telling me. Um, yeah, Celtics at Hawks, game six coming up because Trey Young hit a three at the buzzer, a dagger, and uh, the Hawks moved past the Celtics. Chase Young for the Washington Commanders. The Commanders are not going to exercise the fifth-year option on their former top pick in the NFL draft from three years ago. So by doing this, if they don't come to a contract extension by next March, hypothetically, Chase Young could be a free agent next offseason. Now, this does not keep Washington from using the franchise tag on him, but they have declined the fifth-year option that would have paid him $17 million guaranteed. $17.45 would be the fully guaranteed money on the fifth-year option. The defensive tag number this year, just for comparison, was 19.7. So the tag number is going to go up next year. They're choosing not to pay in the $17 million now that will lock in for next year. Instead, having him prove it because he had Defensive Player of the Year honors his rookie year. Um, he was phenomenal for them that season. Followed that up with a subpar performance. And then he's been hurt. Now a chance to come back and they want him to prove it. Also, new ownership, I'm sure, has something to do with this. But he's one of the stars on what was already a good defense. And if he plays up to his, his abilities, he's going to get the contract extension. Maybe not for the same amount that he once thought. And I'm a bit surprised that they've decided not to just pick up the fifth-year option and, and keep him under contract for at least that extra year. Which, when, when healthy, he's been really good. And they're going to end up paying him more on the tag. Again, unless they're able to to come to some type of extension prior to that. NBA tonight, four games. Knicks and Cavs coming your way in about an hour. You have uh, Lakers and Grizzlies. Elimination game for Memphis and, and the Grizz as the Lakers uh, hit the road trying to end that series in a 4-1 blowout fashion. Bucks and Heat, another interesting series where the, the Milwaukee Bucks could be out without a win tonight over Miami. And then the final game tonight, Warriors and Kings in a series tied 2-2. Davey, do we have time to tie in the Kardashians to Buffalo? I think I can make it work. You know, the the reason I thought of this is we go back to the two-point conversion that the Houston Texans made to ultimately cost themselves the number one overall pick. Yes. And obviously, if they got number one, everyone's thinking, hey, they've been linked to Bryce Young this entire time. Yep. Well, it, it's just one of those things. You never know how this is going to ultimately play itself out in the long run. And one of the finest instances we have is in 1968, you go back to the NFL, the Buffalo Bills had a dropped pass that could have won them a game. I think it was against the Raiders, it was against the Broncos. Either way, terrible record. Record just good enough to where they're able to get the number one overall pick. 1969, they draft O.J. Simpson. And the next thing you know, O.J. just does a fantastic job as a football player. Eventually meets his wife. Uh, but it ultimately leads to him murdering his wife. I know he didn't happen, whatever. But anyway, that relates to Kim Kardashian's father, Robert Kardashian, being his attorney. And then... 
the rest is history as the Kardashians come up and are famous, and yet now we're stuck with the Kardashians because of drop pass in 1968. And so what that drop pass in the playoffs this year by Buffalo, I'm sure there was one. I wonder what it leads to. Maybe Chad will have the answers. He'll rejoin us tomorrow. Fun show today. Join us tomorrow, 3 o'clock Eastern, across the Outkick Network.